This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been sharing big ideas in small, powerful doses from the most creative thinkers of our time. The Think Again podcast straps us to a rocket and shoots us right out of our comfort zone. We surprise some of the smartest people you know with ideas they're not prepared to discuss. I'm very happy to be joined today by Mark Goodman. He's an expert in cybercrime who has worked as a police investigator and an advisor to both the FBI and Interpol. His book, which has just come out in paperback, is called Future Crimes, Inside the Digital Underground and the Battle for Our Connected World. Welcome to Think Again, Mark. Thank you, my pleasure to be here. You are the Policy, Law, and Ethics Chair at Singularity University. That is true. The limited knowledge I have of Singularity University combined with my, like, Eastern prejudices, like, I, you know, I picture, <laughs> you know, Ray Kurzweil and Peter Diamandis and all those guys out there just going like, wow, oh my God, technology is awesome, it's, we're going to live till a million years old, and it will solve all the problems of the world. And then I picture you in the faculty meeting going, whoa, guys, death, destruction, threat. Robots are going to kill us in our sleep. Yeah, so how's that? how does that go? When Roombas attack. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so uh, it's a credit to Singularity University. I work with some amazing people, not just Ray and Peter, but astronauts and physicians and like the folks that are basically inventing the future in robotics and artificial intelligence, nanotech, digital biology, big data, and the like. And they all, by their nature, tend to see the very positive aspects of this. But because I've spent a career in law enforcement and know how bad guys break stuff, I'm able to apply that experience to my own understanding of these technologies. So the people that create many of these tools think it's awesome to build a quadcopter drone because it's cool and you can put a camera on it and look at pictures in HD, but they don't realize you could also strap a bomb on it or use it for delivering narcotics or right. to spy on your neighbors or women as they're changing, you know, on their 20-story apartment buildings in the privacy of their own homes. So all technology is, in effect, dual use. It can be used for good or it can be used for ill, right? Radi right. You know, the atomic energy, right? The minute we split the atom, you could use that for great things for powering the world, but you could also use it as a planet-destructing weapon. It seems like a very polarizing thing. Like whenever anybody says, and you mentioned this in your book as well, like whenever anybody says anything not entirely positive about technology, it, they are very quickly labeled a Luddite. She's a witch. Burn her. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah. There's a lot of that. Why is that? Why are we so obsessed with it being a good thing? You know, why can't we live with both things at the same time? So it was later in life that I found out donuts are meant to be bad for you. And I was really disappointed <laughs> because I thought donuts tasted great. And I don't understand why people, why, what do you mean they're bad for me? Right. And so for all the people who are addicted to their mobile phones and are, you know, tweeting and spending 
all their time on Facebook and putting stuff out there on Snapchat and Yik Yak and whatever tools they like. They like it. They derive some pleasure and many of these tools are creative to be addictive in nature, whether it's the game that you're playing, right? Angry Birds right. is incredibly addictive, right? right. It's built so that you'll engage with that as long as possibly can so they can show you as many ads as possible. Facebook wants you to stick around. So people like these tools, they become dependent on these tools, and when you say, hey, there's the negative uh, implications of this, they don't like hearing it. The fact that we unwittingly and unquestioningly accept every new app that's thrown at us, every new toy, for example, Samsung recently changed their smart televisions. In the old days, if you wanted to change a channel, you would have to push on the remote control. I say the old days. Right. And as you know, as Americans, pushing on a single button on a remote control would be like more than our daily allotment of exercise. We could accidentally burn a billionth of a calorie <laughs> right. pushing that button. So Samsung improved the process by allowing us to voice interact with our television. So you could sit there in your chair and say, television on, channel seven, volume up, and your TV would do your bidding. But in order for that to work, Samsung had to update the terms of services on their smart TVs to let users know that Please bear in mind that Samsung will be monitoring everything that you say in front of your television, including the ambient sound, and we're sending this information to third parties who are doing real-time voice recognition on what you say. Okay. Therefore, if there's something that you wish to keep private, please don't say it in front of your own television in your own home. So, <laughs> oh my God. sounds great. Hey, I'm changing the channels with my voice. But as you and your wife are in bed, or girlfriend or boyfriend discussing stuff, the television is listening. And if you've read George Orwell's 1984, sure. it's not that far off. So, I want people to love technology and use it to the max, but I want them to be informed. There's a reason why you're called a Facebook user, right? right? Yeah. Somebody's being used, and these terms of services are really usury. They're used against you. We we have all read, check the little box that says, I have read and agreed to the terms of service. I have read and agreed to the terms of service is the biggest lie on the internet. Nobody has read those and they've gone from a thousand words to two thousand words. Facebook started out as a thousand words, now it's ten thousand, okay? If you look at the US Constitution, it's only 4,400 words. PayPal's is up to 35,000 words. Shakespeare's Hamlet is only 32,000 words. There was a study that came out that said if every American read the terms of service they were confronted with on an average year, it would take 78 days of their lives reading eight hours a day to get through them all. So are you the only guy in the world who has read the terms of service? <laughs> I do read the <laughs> terms of service. It's not all of them, but if there's a particularly funky app that I'm downloading, I will definitely look at, like the flashlight apps. There's one app out there, I think it was called like Best Flashlight, and it had over 10 million downloads. And when you downloaded it, it would say, Best Flashlight app requires access to your precise location, to your contacts, to your camera, to your microphone. It's like, it's a flashlight app. Why does it need access to my contact and why does the flashlight need my location like I'm located in the dark that's why I need a flashlight that's the only thing it should need to know so a little bit of common sense goes a long way indeed okay well now we get to the heart of the podcast where we are both in the same boat I have not seen the video clip interview bits that we're gonna see now they are picked by our producers we're gonna watch three of them and discuss them are we ready ready okay the first one that we have here, David Aegis, professor of medicine and engineering, I hope I said your name right, David Aegis, 
Cancer is 90% curable in kids, so how can we make old bodies feel young again? I want to tell you one story. Um, and the story came from the early 1950s. A woman named Wanda Ruth Lunsford, she was a scientist in New York City. What she did was she took an old rat and a young rat, she put them to sleep, and she tied their skin together. So after about a day or so, their blood supplies joined. Well, several weeks later, she looked, and that old rat, the heart beat stronger and the muscles were bigger. The gray hair turned brown again. She claimed she reversed aging. People call her Dracula, Frankenstein, all kinds of crazy names. Well, earlier this year, three separate laboratories at Harvard, Stanford, University of California, San Francisco, repeated the experiment and it worked. And what they showed is at age 25, in you and I, our stem cells go to sleep and get turned off. And proteins from young mice in this case, or young humans, can turn them back on again. So I leave you with that bit of hope that aging is something that may be able to be reversed. And not so we can live till 150, but so that we can all live until our ninth or 10th decade without there being a decrease in quality in those last decades. Because that be the goal, quality years till the end. Fascinating video. I think Wanda was a bit crazy, the scientist who did this. Uh, it's kind of freaky. Uh, yes, let's all kidnap infants and suck their blood, and then we'll live forever. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, yeah, interesting concept, and I'm sure that there's probably validity to it, particularly since those three studies have been replicated. So that's great. That's great news for people who have life-threatening diseases, and I'm sure it will benefit us all, at least those who have the wealth to get access to these technologies. There's always that. Yeah, yeah there is always that. But I'm sure it's all covered. <laughs> Rat therapy is probably covered under Obamacare, so I'm sure <laughs> we're all fine now. <laughs> I would say elderly, well, the elderly, however you define it, right? And, you know, the 50s is the new 30s, etc. You see that people will actually benefit tremendously from this. Our biggest diseases are coming from lifestyle, right? Drinking and smoking and obesity and all that stuff. And if we can make some advances on that, that would be great. Elder people are faced some really significant challenges. You only need to look to Japan and other countries in Asia that have very, very elderly populations, there are clearly not enough physicians in Japan to treat the number of old people or nurses. So they have a real problem. One of the interesting things that they've done is turn to robotics. A famous one is called the Paro, P-A-R-O. Right. It's kind of a seal robot that coos, but it looks very innocuous. But as the elderly person is sleeping, it's monitoring their vital signs. It's seeing if they're breathing, it's seeing if they're moving. When we think of smart homes today, we think about our Nest thermostats and the like, but we'll also have smart floors that can tell whether or not an elderly person has fallen and passed out on the ground and automatically dispatch 911. So I think the future could be incredibly bright with some of these technologies, but there may be a few bumps along the way. I mean, the major risks to the elderly when we talk about technology, I mean, are due to like loss of cognition and people taking advantage of they're not being familiar enough with the new technologies, not understanding what they're giving away, not understanding what they're risking, and so forth. Absolutely. The fastest growing demographic on Facebook is women over 50. Right. right. So these are people who didn't necessarily grow up on social media or even the internet. And it is very easy to take advantage of folks. Criminals specialize in defrauding the elderly. I, and I think there's a special place in hell for people that do that. Yeah, speaking of special places in hell, and this is a little bit of a departure, but 
my sister passed away last year. This is not a plea for sympathy, but it's a fact. And I got an email recently which said, you know, I am a private investment counselor. Your sister named you as next of kin. I've been trying to get in touch with you. Can you contact me? And I'll admit that I was like, huh, you know, I'm pretty skeptical and savvy, I'd say generally, although nowhere near as much as I should be having read your book. But, you know, I'm like, huh, okay, I need more information from you. Like, what? Do you have a website? Huh? So, you know, it was very quick, quickly apparently a scam. A, I'm like, okay, dude, you are obviously a truly horrible human being. But B, like me, the next of kin, the brother, our last names aren't even the same. It seems like a couple of degrees of separation for a criminal to get there. Yeah, I mean, there's tons of information out there. The Social Security Death Index is one place that you can start. Now that everybody posts their entire family tree on Facebook, it's easy to know what your mother's maiden name was, what high school you went to, all those challenge questions that right. used to work. You know, the more you post on social media, the less effective any of that is. But criminals are incredibly sophisticated in going after us. I mean, just the number of people, like I'm sure you know the Nigerian prince scam, sure. where somebody gets an email come from a Nigerian prince, I have $10 million and if you help me get out of this war-torn country, I will give you a percentage. If only you put up a few hundred thousand dollars in good faith. <laughs> right. uh, and yet, people make millions and millions on that. Here's a hint to all your listeners. There are no Nigerian princes, okay? <laughs> if you get an email from a Nigerian prince, hit the delete button. So the bad guys are getting incredibly sophisticated and actually advances in artificial intelligence are making that even more effective. How so? Yeah. Well, I've seen cases recently where people often post questions online like, hey, I'm having problems with Windows or does anybody know how to fix this on my iPhone? And now there are bots out there that are scanning social media and the minute they see somebody put out a request of any type for technical assistance on the internet they're responding on Facebook or whatever social media platform it is and saying oh yes I had a problem with this and I called this company and they were incredibly helpful why don't you call them and they post an 800 number now here's where the AI comes in the criminals actually have built interactive voice recognition systems so that when you dial the 800 number they'll say hey you've reached the tech support helpline. If you're calling about a business computer, press one. If you're calling about Mac, press two. And the fascinating thing is that if you're calling about a business, they presume that you are sophisticated and they're not going to help you. If you're calling about Mac, they presume you know what you're doing and they're not going to help you. And basically what they're doing is pre-scanning people with AI to say people who are using Windows 98, Windows 95, XP machines, and those people are automatically being routed to a criminal operator who will say, Oh, yes, can I help you? Oh, I'm going to send you a small app which will fix your problem. Just download this app and click on it. And, of course, uh, then they're taking control of their computers. Wow, they're separating the easy marks. With Absolutely, the and they're doing it for reasons of business efficiency. They don't have the criminal manpower to answer every <laughs> right, call. Right. So they're letting the IVR do the work for them. Wow. Okay, well, should we take a look at what the next one is they've got first? As long as it's not about rats. I live in New York. I get more than enough <laughs> rats. Okay, so this is Majid Nawaz. He's the co-author of a book called Islam and the Future of Tolerance. These people that I refer to as the subsection of the left, I refer to as the regressive left, have good intentions. I recognize that. I also recognize that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I think it's important to understand that I am a Muslim. I'm born and raised a Muslim. And every single grievance that uh, my fellow well-intentioned liberals 
are worried about, that a Muslim may have, I have experienced. They're worried about racism. I've had neo-Nazis come at me with hammers and knives and machetes. I've had to watch friends stab before my eyes. They're worried about the war on terror. Well, I've been a victim of the war on terror. I've witnessed torture in an Egyptian jail. I've been interned without charge, and eventually I've been a prisoner of conscience adopted by Amnesty International. They're worried about profiling of airports. I've had my DNA taken from me forcibly without my consent. I've had my right to silence taken from me under British war on terror laws. Everything they're worried about, I've had happen to me. And I say this, therefore, from a place that is concerned about these civil liberties issues for Muslims because I've suffered them myself. And what I say to these well-intentioned regressive leftists is that your good intentions in not having this conversation, not differentiating Islamism, Islamist extremism, the ideology from the religion of Islam are making the problem worse, not better. It's one of the things I'm being very critical as a liberal about President Obama's policy. He's up until now unable to name the Islamist ideology. Well, this is the first time I've seen that gentleman and I'm unfamiliar with his work. When I was listening to the opening about he had been tortured and every one of his friends had been killed and attacked with hammers, I was like, wow, where did this guy grow up? That sounds pretty rough. Uh, and Actually, I'm, I can give a little bit of context because okay. although I've not seen that video, I did read his book okay. with Sam Harris. He was a leader in a kind of global political Islamist ex extremist group, not a terrorist group, but okay. they were trying to foment revolution around the world from the time he was 17 until he was, I don't know, 20 something. And then he ended up in a jail I in see. Egypt and then totally okay. changed. Yeah. Well, that, that makes a little bit more sense. So the question about naming radical Islam, I think that that's probably a good idea. You have to name something before you can deal with it, right? You have to diagnose the problem. If somebody's sick, you have to figure out whether or not it's a cancerous cell or a failed liver or whatever the problem is so that you can fix it. And I think that some of his points seem valid, that voice from inside the Muslim community has been somewhat missing from the conversation. Every time there's a terrorist attack around the world, you get somebody from some very centrist or responsible Islamic organization that says Islam is a peace-loving religion. It's a peace-loving religion. That message seems to get garbled for some people <laughs> right. who, who kill in the name of that religion. And again, other religions, Christian, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, have all had elements of this. But certainly in our modern world, we're seeing something quite specific here. Yeah, that's not a sufficient response. It's not sufficient to say right. Islam is peace-loving. You say Islam is peace-loving for this reason and that reason, and yet this is happening because. There needs to be that follow-up. You were talking about being a New York guy, I am too, and I was here on 9-11 and, and lived through all of that. And it becomes quite real. And just through my own work in counterterrorism and law enforcement, I've investigated the 7-7 bombing in London. I spent time studying that. The 2008 terrorist attack in Mumbai, the 2004 Tocha train station in Madrid, and there's clearly a pattern there, and it needs to be addressed. And then people talk about the concept of racial profiling, right? You know, and is it fair that people go through extra scrutiny? And it's a very difficult position for the security services because the fact of the matter is, 85-year-old Irish ladies are not hijacking planes, right? Uh, as if you're running security, you also need to be careful because the terrorists are actually quite clever. One of the things that ISIS is eagerly doing is recruiting people people who don't have Syrian or Egyptian or uh, Afghani passports. They're looking for people with German passports and French passports so that they can re-enter Europe and re-enter the West to carry out these attacks. So there's no such thing as the 
classic terrace. They come in all shapes and sizes and flavors, but one needs to be sophisticated. But that also means that you can't subvert common sense, too. Yeah, I've heard complaints on both sides. You know, people complaining like, why are they pulling me out? I couldn't possibly fit the profile of a terrorist. But, I mean, I totally understand why they would need to cast a wide net. Right. Yeah. All right, well, shall, let's, let's take a look at the last one, shall we? Sounds great. Okay, great. This is our citizens arrests legal with Curtis Sliwa of the I, Guardian. I remember him. Angels. Yeah, I remember him too. The 80s. Closed circuit TV <laughs> right. in, in D.C. where I was at the time. Okay, let's hear what he has to say. Well, first off, uh, if you uh, talk to the brainiacs, uh, you know, with their parchments in public safety from uh, Ivy League schools, they'll swear to you that citizen arrest is a vigilante act. I've been with police superintendents, I've been in think tanks, and these so-called, quote, police scientists will tell me it's a vigilante act. They don't have to argue with them that it's in the penal code, it's been written about, it's been embedded into the fabric of law since the Magna Carta in England. So, is it a reality? Can you be sued? Is it something that in which you inherit upon yourself potential danger to yourself, danger to somebody else, civil liability, criminal liability? Of course, but it shouldn't give you an X-lax attack and make you fear to the point where you're frozen solid as a result of your inability to respond as a good Samaritan should do. Now, having applied it now hundreds, thousands of times in venues all over the world, I can tell you this. It's a Chinese menu. There are three ways to do it. And I've become very proficient at doing it, so much so that in 31 years, we haven't been sued once. I want to go to like anonymous and, you know, sort of vigilante justice out there on, on the internet. I want to go back to the freaking Magna Carta. <laughs> the freaking Magna Carta in England. It's where it all freaking started. Exactly. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I want to talk about uh, your thoughts as someone who's been in law enforcement and, and who deals with the fact that enforcement often lags technologically behind, as you write in your book, the criminals. What are your thoughts and feelings about, say, anonymous and groups like that who take it into their own hands, who sort of crowdsource justice? I'd like to start a step back if sure, we can, absolutely. Ju just to say that he actually <laughs> raises an interesting point, which is that what is the role of a professional police force and what is the role of a citizenry? You know, the concept of a modern policeman only dates to the 1800s when Sir Robert Peel, Sir Robert Peel in the UK created the British Bobbies. The reason they're called Bobbies is because they were named okay. after Robert Peel. And that was the first professional police force. Other than that, it was so-called wild, wild west, where citizens in the western part of this country took care of it, or going back to England, crowds with pitchforks took action upon their own. So the concept throughout human history of professional police is actually relatively new, you mm. know, 150 years or so. So he's right. There is, going back to the freaking Magna Carta, a history <laughs> of, of all of this. I remember when I was in the police academy, one of the first things that they taught us is the people are the police and the police are the people. We're not some separate elite class. We are part of society. Sure. And as citizens, we have chosen to make it our vocation and our avocation public safety. And so when a citizenry gets separated from the people that police it, other citizens, you have problems, whether it be in Egypt, as we saw in the last video, or in the city of New York. So as long as the people and the police work well together, such as in community policing and neighborhood watch and other types of things, you can have really excellent community safety 
where everybody's working together. But in those cases where it's not, or crime rises, or law enforcement acts in manners that are not appreciated by the community or contrary to the law, you get issues. We need to get involved in this. We need to get involved in our physical world to make sure that we're part of a community and maintaining our neighborhood so that they don't descend into crime and lawlessness and that we also are doing the same in cyberspace. The internet broke policing, full stop. That's something that most people don't realize. An NYPD officer, an LAPD officer can't make an arrest in Moscow or vice versa. And that mm. goes back to the Treaty of Westphalia when we created nation states. So we don't want a cop in Moscow making arrests in Brooklyn. That's to the good. But criminals can take advantage of that and have because cyber criminals can bounce from server to server and server, changing their IP addresses in a matter of seconds. And for law enforcement to get a letter rogatoire to chase an international cyber criminal across the world can take two years just to get some evidence. And once you get that evidence, many countries, cybercrime havens, particularly in Eastern Europe, won't ever extradite. Uh. So policing is a model that served us really, really well for the past few centuries. But it is one that's being deeply challenged by our new technologies. If you look at traditional crime, you had something that we don't have anymore, often don't have anymore, which is co-location of criminal, victim, evidence, police, district attorney, and courts. If somebody pulled off a bank robbery in Times Square, what do we know? We know the criminal was in Times Square. We know the victim was in mm -hmm. Times Square. We know that the NYPD and the FBI can investigate and an assistant U.S. attorney or the Manhattan DA's office could prosecute. Dem days is over. Of course, we have lots of physical crime today, but in the case of cybercrime, you may have a hacker in Moscow who's hacked into a server in Brazil to work his way through Paris before they actually do the bank robbery of J.P. Morgan Chase online in New York. So you have multiple jurisdictions, involves multiple languages, multiple legal systems, mm. evidence in all four jurisdictions, and you don't have dual criminality. So the police in New York can never, even if they identify the person, um, your chances of getting them extradited is nil. Therefore, I think the public has a role to play in protecting ourselves on the internet. There's going to be a shortage of two million cybersecurity professionals by the year 2020, according to Cisco. We're one million short today. If you look at the growing technological threats our society faces, it's clear that the police can't handle it all. Look at the number of times that the U.S. government has been hacked, right? They've proven right. feckless. State Department's been hacked. DOD's been hacked. Office of Personnel Management's been hacked. White House has been hacked, right? So we need to bring some expertise into this. And I think there's a huge role for people who work at Big Think and Google and Facebook and Yahoo and their local companies to come in here and help us solve this problem. Given that the problems are so massive and given that the shortfalls are so massive, do you think that some of like where the boundaries are between the power and responsibility of individual citizens and companies versus Interpol and police force, FBI, et cetera, I, I don't know how individuals would know where those boundaries are, you know, how far should I go? In, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's a question. So, for example, in physical space, as Curtis Sliwa was saying, if somebody is physically assaulting you, you can fight back within reason. And there are people who make mistakes, and we've had cases in the news recently where, you know, citizens are shooting unarmed people and like. We've also had cases where citizens actually shot the right guy who happened to be armed. So it goes down both ways. In the case of the internet, though you can defend yourself in physical space, 
space, it's actually illegal under current US law for a citizen to hack back. Are there cases where that gets enforced it, it's, seriously? It, like it's known in the corporate world so that the corporates don't officially mm. hack back. Now there may be intermediaries who are hired to take care of business. So hacking back broadly is illegal in the United States and many other countries, which means what are you supposed to do? <laughs> right. um, you mentioned Anonymous and there are other groups like LulzSec that have taken on this sort of internet vigilante role. They kind of see themselves as the Robin Hood of this space and yet they have done some really bad things out there that are well known and they've also done some good things that are not well known right their release of information government secrets and the like things that people didn't know their governments were up to evil things that people didn't know corporations were up to anonymous have sort of stepped in as vigilantes to release that data one of the most clear examples of this people in law enforcement are very very quick to say oh, anonymous is bad and they should all be arrested and in fact the FBI FBI has said that very clearly, as has the police in the UK and elsewhere. But one of the more recent acts of Anonymous is they went after a child pornography website and they broke the encryption on the website and they found all the members and they published it all online. So Anonymous de-anonymized a, a group of child predators, sexual predators over the internet. So. Hmm, that's interesting. I don't like vigilantes, but I really don't like child sex predators. And right. so where do you draw the line? And, you know, clearly the law was broken by anonymous. It was also broken by the child sex predators. So on right. balance, how do you choose? I think we're going to see a lot more of this, particularly if the police continue to be under-resourced and prove themselves feckless, right? If there's really excellent law enforcement, you know, courtesy what came out of the Guardian Angels, I think is what yes. they were called, in the 70s and 80s, because New York was a zoo. Like, I lived here in the 70s and 80s, and you took your life in your hands when you walked through Times Square, Brooklyn, parts of the Bronx. I mean, the Bronx was burning, is what they used to say. Right. So that vigilanteism came out of an inability of law enforcement to keep the community safe. What do you people to do. And given the inability of law enforcement to protect people online, to protect their data, the amount of hacking, the credit card theft, child sexual exploitation over the right. internet, of course, people are going to turn to other solutions. Yeah, whatever the laws are, there's an implicit contract between law enforcement and the citizenry. And if that gets broken, then people are going to take things into their own hands. Exactly. Mark Goodman, it's been really great having you on Think Again. Uh, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. It's a really exciting time around here. We are almost finished with the shiny new theme song, which is being composed as we speak by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, who also composed the awesome theme song for the Reply All podcast. I'm joined next week by Paul F. Tompkins, comedian and host of Spontanea Nation podcast, which is hilarious. If you haven't heard it, you should. And because you can never have enough of Curtis Lewa, the leader of the Guardian Angels who we heard from earlier in the program, we leave you with his story of the time he was essentially trapped in a rolling coffin. See you next week. As a talk show host, I comment about many things in life, but I particularly enjoy mob talk. Well, I talk about the geriatric espresso sipping psychotic killers of organized crime. And if their names are Gotti and they're in the Gambino crime family, I have uh, an orgasmatic verbal frenzy. 
because I know them. I know their degenerates right down to the marrow of their bone. And when John Gotti Sr. was on trial for the last time, the fourth time, when they stripped him of his Teflon and he ended up doing triple life without parole at Marion in Illinois, I would critique the trial each and every morning after the day before his testimony. And I would talk about what an enemy of society, a cretin with chromosome damage and knuckle dragger as Yadrul, a musclehead this Gotti Sr. was. And naturally, every sickle fan, toady, and lackey throughout the New York area would call up, disparage me, threaten me, and tell me that I would soon be room temperature. And I would say, oh, far to you, and language that I can't even describe here. But you know what? They actually carried out their threats. And so in April, they decided to tool me up. They took out some baseball bats and laid in wait for me to come out of my apartment on the Lower East Side to make my way to WABC at Madison Square Garden. And they hit me about 32 times and rearranged my medulla and cerebellum so that all the furniture was upstairs and rearranged in the wrong rooms. And assumed that I would learn the code of Ometa, I would shut my mouth. Well, the moment I got out of the ER at Beth Israel, I just ratcheted it up. Instead of a half hour a day of mob talk, it was an hour a day. And now I talked about unsolved crimes involving Gotti Sr. and Gotti Jr. And that obviously caused him to pop the top because I didn't realize he was given an AM radio in federal prison so he could listen to me every morning before he would go to trial. And he ordered his son, the underboss of the Gambino crime family, to whack me. He says, you get little Nick Nick Carrazzo who grew up with him in Canarsie. He knows every move. We know Slee was going to resist. And this is the plot. They stole a yellow cab late at night sawed the handles off on the inside and turned it into a rolling coffin and assumed that on one of those mornings I would pick their cab, which had their wheel man, uh, a Gambino guy named uh, Angelo uh, Dundee Bundini Brown or something along those lines, and the shooter, Michael Iannotti. And they would go round and round the block. And Joey D'Angelo looked like a cab driver, and Michael Iannotti was a killer extraordinaire because he was an executioner. And on the sixth day that they went round and round, bingo, lotto day for them. I picked their cab. I jumped in the back, told them, Madison Square Garden, hurry up, Mac. Said, no problem, Sleo. And I thought, wow, an English-speaking cab driver, a guy who knows where he's going. Man, this is my day. I can max and relax, read the newspapers, prepare for the broadcast. Halfway there, instead of turning left and going west, he turns right to Gabon and goes east. And I said, hey, Mac, turn this hack around. And all of a sudden, he was putting the pedal to the metal, and I could hear the transmission grinding. And I said, hmm, I don't think he's taking this to Amco for a transmission fix. And I said, hey, Mac, I told you, turn this hack around. And then lickety-split, within seconds, all of a sudden, some gorilla pops up in front of me who had been stuffed under the dashboard. He's popping a 38 right down at my three-piece set, my lower extremities, not the knife, spoon, and, uh, spoon and fork. And all of a sudden, he says, take this, you son of a bitch, pooh, and he fires. And I could see the fire leave the barrel of the gun, didn't feel anything, and never been shot before, so assumed, wow, this is just a bad dream or a misfire. And by the time I could come to my senses, as my heart was beeping, and I felt like Robbie Robot and lost in space, you know, danger, Mr. Robinson, danger, he raises the gun, fires a second time, and now I feel it, the cramping, the blood is spewing. All of a sudden, I'm in a panic, and I immediately dive for the door, figure I'll dive into oncoming traffic, risk becoming a speed bump, and they knew I would do that, and as I reached for the hand, 
window and pulled the Yankee open and came off in my hand and pow, a third shot right through my legs like a hot knife through butter. I've now been shot three times. I'm bleeding like a sieve. I'm stuffed beneath the driver trying to avoid the head shots. I'm fighting the gun off so he can't pop two in the back of my head. And then all of a sudden I pick up my guardian angel walkie-talkie. I say, Angel One, Code Red, Angel One. And they start blabbering away. And it distracts the driver, Joey D'Angelo, who thinks maybe it's NYPD 5-0. So he drives on the sidewalk. He drives back onto the street. He makes a radical turn going south towards the Williamsburg Bridge. And I feel a gust of wind. And I said, feet don't fail me now. I got precious little energy. So I used the cushion in the back to see as if it were a trampoline. Dived in the direction of what I felt was an open window because I felt the gust of wind. Luckily, they had opened the window just moments before they had picked me up because the air conditioner wasn't working. Lucky that the AC wasn't working. I made it halfway out the window. The gunman panics. He realizes, oh my God, he's out the window. So he pulls me up by my belt. He puts the gun in my back. The driver at the same time crashes me into parked cars. I smash me like sardines, nut to butt. They pump that final bullet in the back, push me out and figure I'm dead on arrival and I'm sucking concrete. Next thing you know, they scrape me up off the asphalt, put me in the gurney, put me in the meat wagon, throw me on the uh, emergency uh, route of Bellevue, and they start cutting and chopping, and an hour and a half, well, actually, hours later, days later, I wake up in intensive care with every tube and every orifice of my body, the bells and whistles. I wake up slowly. I see that first face that indicates to me that I'm alive, I'm not dead, and it's Ed Koch, my former nemesis, the former mayor of the city of New York, who thought I was a hemorrhoid in the Red Beret, and I thought I had died and gone straight to hell without an asbestos suit. When I came to my senses, I realized I was alive. I took a licking and came back ticking, and let's face it, it wasn't my martial arts skill that saved the day or my street smarts. It was the man upstairs who decided it wasn't, I wasn't ready to be punching on the time clock yet and uh, going out uh, feet first.